the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Over the course of the last couple of broadcasts, we have focused on the call of the church. But what is the foundation of the church? That's the question we hope to answer today on this edition of Abounding Grace. The foundation of the church really is quite simple. It's found in Jesus Christ. Hello and welcome to our broadcast. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Today we return to Luke chapter 6, again looking at verses 12 through 16, and the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Won't you join us as we examine this foundation and understand what shoulders we actually stand on and why? Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Last Sunday we began looking at what some people would consider an unusual subject, although I hope you will admit it is an interesting one. But not just an interesting one, but one of unexpected and practical importance to our everyday lives as Christians. And that is the relationship of the 12 apostles who lived 2,000 years ago to the foundation of our church, and to our everyday lives. Most Christians have never even thought about this subject, and many of those Christians who have thought about it could really care less. But we began looking at some of those passages in the Bible that specifically refer to the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and their relationship to us. And we found that there is food here to feed the soul. So let me spend just a few minutes reviewing what we began to look at last week by turning to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, verse, chapter 2, verse 19, we read these words. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Now here is the first thing and the basic thing we see about the relationship of the apostles to our lives, and that is they are the foundation of a house, and that house is the temple of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles and the prophets in their writings of the New Testament, the apostolic testimony, the spirit-inspired writings of the New Testament is the basis, the foundation upon which the church is built. Everything that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs or ever will need until the end of time, is laid in the writings of the prophets 
of the Old and New Testaments and the writings of the apostles. We need nothing outside that foundation. That foundation that was built 2,000 years ago is firm enough and strong enough to hold the church and to nourish her and to keep her growing throughout all history. Therefore, we respect the apostles, but not as individual men. They were sinners just like you and I. But as men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, as no one since has been, so that while they wrote or spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what they spoke and what they wrote was incapable of error. They spoke thoughts that originated in the mind of God, which were replaced in their minds by the Holy Spirit. And then they express those spirit-produced thoughts in words. So that the Bible is true in all it claims, beloved. It is a God-breathed book that did not originate in any way with man. The apostles were simply the instruments through which God reveals to us what is on his mind and on his heart from the pages of Scripture. And therefore, if your church is a church that seeks to establish itself upon the teachings of the prophets and apostles, it seeks to be faithful to the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Well, that's enough review. Let's turn now to Matthew 19. And beloved, this is such a great passage that I'm not only going to read it, but we are going to read the parallel passages as well. You know, it amazes me that some commentaries, commentators barely even mention this passage. They simply give it a lick and a promise and they move on. And the reason they do it is because there are some theologians that just can't fit this passage into their theology. Let me show you. Matthew 19, verse 27. Then answered Peter, who said unto them, Behold, we have forsaken all. And follow thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, That which ye have, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now, if you would turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Then Peter began to say unto them, Lo, we have left all, and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake, and the gospels, but he shall receive one hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, And the last first. And now back to our 
book of Luke, but this time chapter 18, verse 28. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all, and follow thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Now, if you would go back to Matthew 19. Peter comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus... What's in store for all of those like us, that is the 12 apostles who have left everything and followed you? You see here first that it wasn't just Matthew, Levi, who left everything to follow Christ. It was all of the apostles. And then Jesus says to them, my generosity is so great that whatever you have given up for me, I am going to reward you beyond all proportion and complications. So if any of you have given up houses and brothers and sisters and father, mother, children, or lands for my sake, you shall receive many times more and you shall inherit eternal life. Now, when is this going to take place? Well, he actually says when it's going to take place in verse 28. When Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, ye shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what is the regeneration? He says, When the regeneration takes place, Peter, Anything that you, my people, have given up for me is going to be returned to you 100-fold. So when is this going to take place? When is this regeneration? Well, many of you probably already know the ordinary assumption that most people make today is that he is talking about his second coming at the end of the world. That at the end of the world, we are going to be compensated far beyond anything we have had to give up for the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. Well, there are a few problems with that interpretation. The first problem is that regeneration has to do with the beginning of spiritual life, not the end of spiritual life. When a person becomes a Christian, that is when they are regenerated. At the end of his life is when he is glorified. Now, when is he regenerated? Does that actually mean that he is going to be made perfect? No, you can be regenerated, be born again, but you will be a sinner throughout your whole life until you die when you are perfected in holiness. But that doesn't mean you're not a new person, and that your life hasn't been in depth substantially and lastingly changed by the power of the gospel and continues to be changed until you are perfected at glorification and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when a person is regenerated, he is not made perfect. So this regeneration has nothing to do with our perfection at glorification as many today believe in the church then what is this regeneration? It's an idea that's taken out of the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament prophesied that with the coming of the Messiah, there would be a new world. There would be a new creation. There would be a new heavens and a new earth. Turn with me to Isaiah 65 and I'll show you. Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And you're probably saying, well, that's talking about the second coming of Christ at the end of the world. Well, let's read on and see. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former of all things shall not be remembered nor come into mind. And then he goes on, and he mentions some of the things that are going to take place during the new heavens and the new earth. For instance, he says in verse 20, There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, wait a minute. It says that during the time of the new heavens and the new earth, there is going to come a time that if anyone dies at a hundred years of age, everyone is going to mourn because he died so young. And they're going to wonder, what did he do that was so bad? That he died at such an early age of 100. Well, beloved, I don't know if you know it or not, but you don't die at any age in heaven. So it must be talking about life on this planet at some time or another, right? Well, let's go to verse 21. And then they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. Then in verse 23, they shall not labor, have children in vain nor bring forth for trouble you don't have children in heaven after the second coming of jesus no more children will be born so here you have people growing old people dying people working building homes people having babies this passage is talking about life on this planet Now, what would be the implication of this as far as the new heavens and the new earth and when it began? Well, let's look over at Isaiah 66. And this is the second time the regeneration of the new heavens and the new earth is mentioned. Verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, Shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, weekly life, shall all flesh, all mankind, come to worship before me, saith the Lord. In the new heavens and the new earth, you're going to see people converted. At the second coming of Christ, you are already converted, beloved. Or you're going to hell. No one else will be converted after the second coming of Christ. But here it says, during the new heavens and the new earth, all mankind is going to be converted. So, what is this new heavens and new earth that Isaiah is prophesying? He is prophesying that when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world 2,000 years ago, He came to bring in a whole new world. 
If any man is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And now the book of Galatians ends with the phrase, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is a new creation. In fact, throughout the New Testament, you have this emphasis that the world has already begun to be recreated at the first coming of Christ. Yes, it's not perfect yet. It hasn't reached its fulfillment yet. And it's not going to be perfect until Jesus comes. But when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth 2,000 years ago, He didn't come just to bring salvation to solitary individuals scattered here and there. He came to bring a whole new day, a whole new era, a whole new age, a whole new world, a new heavens and a new earth. And now here he speaks of that regeneration, the making of all things new. And then he pinpoints when this regeneration of the world is going to take place in verse 28. Verily I say unto you, that which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory. Now, there he says it. The world will be made all over again when I sit on my glorious throne. When I begin to reign as a king. Now, when did Jesus Christ take a seat on this glorious throne? When did he begin to reign? Well, there are some people who say he hasn't yet. They believe, unfortunately, that Satan reigns. That he is in control of this world. Everything is in subjection to him. And they've got to wait until the end of the world when Jesus then takes his place on the throne. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches in Ephesians 1.19, notice what Paul says clearly. And really, I, I don't see how people can get around this passage. Ephesians 1.19, breaking into the middle of the sentence, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him on his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So when did the Lord Jesus Christ begin to reign? He began to reign when God raised him from the dead and he ascended to God's right hand. Beloved, he's been reigning now for 2,000 years. He has the entire world under his control. So if the regeneration began with Christ, uh, when Christ took his throne at God's right hand, when did the regeneration of the world take place? The same time, 2,000 years ago when Christ rose from the dead. Now notice what he says is going to happen back in Matthew 19 when he takes his throne and he starts to make the world over again. 
He says to his apostles in verse 21, verse 28, I'm sorry, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, when I ascend to my father and I take my seat as the king of the universe, it is going to be the regeneration of the world. And one of the great signs of the regeneration of the world is that you 12 apostles are going to sit upon 12 thrones, and you are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that can be said, of course, in a unique sense about the apostles, but it can also be said in a secondary sense about the whole church represented by the apostles as the foundation. In what sense... Do the apostles sit on thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel? The twelve tribes of Israel, that phrase, is a conventional expression in New Testament times for the members of the kingdom of God. It is not to be taken with crass literalism. It is a conventional expression for the members of the kingdom of God of God, you and I. Now, who are the members of the kingdom of God? The disciples of Christ, you and I. Hence the phrase, the tribes of Israel, as it is used here, refers to the citizens of the kingdom of God, which are identified by the Lord Jesus Christ as none other than his disciples, those who believe in him through the word of his apostles. And so it says, these 12 apostles are going to sit on thrones and are going to share with Christ in the rule and judging of the kingdom of God, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do you think that really means? Does that mean the 12 apostles are going to have 12 literal thrones? No, because remember, as we talked about last week, the emphasis in the New Testament is not on the persons of these apostles. It is on the writings of these apostles. It is on apostolic doctrine. So when the Lord Jesus Christ uses great Old Testament imagery by saying, when my reign over all things began at my ascension, And I began to make all things new, the governing, judging, regulating authority for the church and the world was none other than apostolic doctrine. The whole course of events of the world, beloved, will be determined by the word of God. What happens to nations from here on out will be determined by what has been written by the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets in their writings will be the ruling factor and the judgment of the church so that the church and the world will constantly be under apostolic judgment. You know, we have really been fairly mistaken We have for proper reasons said that we are a church that stands on the word of God. We say that we stand upon the word of God. And the point that we are really trying to make is that we do not stand upon any other foundation. But there is another way of saying it that is 
really more accurate. And that is to say, a faithful church is a church that stands under the Word of God. And that Word is always judging, and it is always sifting, and it's always examining, and always trying. So a Christian is someone who is always allowing the light of that Word of God to try him, and to sift him, and to convict him, and to worry him, to make him feel guilty. He doesn't try to escape guilt, the Christian. He doesn't shut his eyes to self-examination. He is someone who is constantly opening himself to the Word of God. Lord, judge me. Lord, cleanse me by your word. Shine a bright light into my life. Oh, 12 apostles sitting on the thrones, around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, judge me. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 40 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB, that stands for Post Mailbox, number 402-1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.